Well, good morning, church. I hope you are all well and doing. I'm telling you what, I'm a little, I'm a, I've, I've lost my voice from worship already. So <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to keep up this morning. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm just, yeah, I'm, you know, guys, I, let me just pause before we get into the text. I am amazed. I shouldn't be amazed, but I am thankful for what God is doing here. Amen. I mean, we just had, we just had a financial report, and which, is, which is scary to give a church. Nobody likes to talk about money, right? Um, and, and I know we prayerfully, our elders prayerfully think about how do we share, but, but, but what Randy said is so true, you know, God gives us so much, and this, all that we have is not ours, and all that he's asking is that we faithfully and cheerfully and worshipfully give back, and so, so you know, tithing and giving is a testimony uh, of just what Randy said, what God has done for us, it's, it's not our money. Um, and I think we need to be cognizant. And then, and then seeing, seeing the support over oceans um, that this little church in Boone, Iowa is choosing to give. They're heeding the call. You know, God calls us to take his message to the ends of the earth. And this little church is doing that. And it's not the church. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, you guys. We are moved and we are thankful and blessed to be a church that is, that is hard after following the one true God. And unfortunately, I say that because not many churches are doing that anymore. And so I'm just thankful for that. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, I am so thankful for who you are, how great you are, how uh, magnificent you are. Even, even words that we can't uh, properly give, Father, I thank you for, for just being you. And God, that just having uh, the ability to rest in you. I'm thankful for a living God who cares and who knows us from the inside out. And this morning, Father, as we get into your word, I pray that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit, that we would be um, convicted, Father, that we would be taught, and that we would, if need be, make hard decisions in our lives to follow hard after you, because that is what uh, matters, and that is the only thing that matters. So God, we give you this time, um, and pray um, that we would be Humbled and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so this morning, you guys, if, you, if, you, if we haven't met, my name is Ryan Graydon, and I'm a member here at Stonebridge and uh, um, have the opportunity to teach from time to time, and I truly love teaching out of God's Word. It's an awesome opportunity, and I don't take it lightly. And, uh, and what, I, what I do is I approach a text, I really prayerfully ask God, man, speak through me. Because my words are not good enough. And so um, this morning we are opening up a new study, a new book of First Thessalonians. And I'm excited to kind of teach you what's going on, what this book is about, and, and the reason why this book or letter was written. Now, I am a bit of a history buff, and Greg Pitclap is too, right? Um, and so we share that. Um, so anytime that I approach reading God's Word, I, I want to know why it was written, where it's coming from, because it helps me understand what's going on. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background of this, this letter, this book. Um, first of all, in my, in my study at preparing for this, I found out, and I didn't know this, that, that this letter, 1 Thessalonians and the next, the 2 Thessalonians, is actually two of the oldest Christian documents in existence. 
These are actually pen to paper and probably in a museum somewhere. But the, these are hard evidence that that history happened, that the account that we have in the Bible happened. These were actually penned by Paul about 49 AD to 51 AD. Somewhere in those couple years, they believe that these letters were written, which makes those pieces of paper, those documents, 1,972 years old, and we have them to view today. I think that's pretty cool. You know, some people look at this book and just think it's a book, but we never realize how valid it is, how real these letters are. And that, that letter was actually written to the church, but also to us. Now, the other thing that I really like to think about is the person who wrote it, Paul. Paul is one of my New Testament heroes. And, and Paul has written a lot of the books in the New Testament, and he's mentioned in the New Testament a lot. And, and, and Paul has a lot of wisdom to give but Paul penned that letter. I could go see that letter and see that ink and know that it came from the pen of Paul. Which just adds more valid truth to these scriptures. And so I, I just think that's really cool because Paul was, Paul was a pretty incredible man. Now, if you don't know much about Paul, in chapter 9 of Acts, you see a dramatic story. In fact, Paul, before he was a follower of Christ, was a persecutor of Christians. He, he literally detested them. He was a good Jew. And as a good Jew, he didn't like this new religion, this Jesus that was changing things. And so he decided to go after the Christians. And he chased them down. He imprisoned them and even put them to death until God radically changed him in Acts chapter 9. And when you read that account, it is, it is, it is an incredible account where, where Jesus, the presence of Jesus was right there with Paul and it forced him to the ground. And the very voice of Jesus, the man that Paul said was not the Messiah, is speaking to Paul saying, why are you persecuting me? And if you go on to reading that story over a matter of days, Paul's whole world was turned upside down and he saw who Jesus actually was and he realized that this was true. And within days, the scriptures say in Acts that Paul was preaching Jesus. Paul had an encounter with Jesus just like you and I have had an encounter with Jesus if we call ourselves Christians. Now, his was probably a little more dramatic than some of ours, but nonetheless, it's the same encounter. And so this morning, I want to share again why this letter was written. What prompted 1 Thessalonians to be written by Paul? Why did he decide that he needed to send this letter back to this church. And in order to understand that, we're going to actually start in Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, would you please turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. And this will give you a picture that will kind of lead into what we're going to study today. So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15 says this, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, they is Paul 
and Timothy and Silas. They're, they're like the traveling trio, all right? And they are preaching Jesus as they go, Paul being the leader of that group. Verse 2, as usual, so this is nothing new, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and, three, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous. And they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them. That's them as Paul and Timothy and Silas to bring them out to the public assembly. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. And after taking a security bond from Jason the others and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and the sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now upon arrival... They went into the synagogue of the Jews. And the people here were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out about the word, that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul, at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. I love... God's word, and I love the accounts that he teaches from. I mean, in this passage, you guys, you see so many things happening here. Paul comes to Thessalonica and begins to preach in a Jewish synagogue, something that obviously he's done over and over, as usual, it said. And that wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. And many Jews who knew Paul by this time had recognized him as a teacher. And it says that Paul taught there for three Sabbaths. So he was roughly there for a three-week time teaching Jews as well as Gentiles because that's what Jesus told Paul to do about the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to notice in this passage, Paul said that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And he explained and provided proof from the Scriptures that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead, thus proving that the Christ was Jesus. 
Many through this reasoning came to believe in Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, mostly Greeks. And I can't help but notice what a brave and spirit-driven man Paul is. Now, I know that this is not part of our text today, and we'll get to it soon, but I, I want to point out a few things here to challenge us in this passage that we just read. First, first thing I noticed was that Paul was reasoning from the Scriptures with people about who Jesus is. Now, let me ask you, if you are able to reason from the Scriptures, then obviously you know the Scriptures, Right? You probably know the scriptures pretty well. How are we doing? How are you and I doing? Do we use the scriptures to reason the gospel? I am as guilty as anybody else, but I hear all of us say a lot of times, well, in the Bible it says... Or somewhere it says, do we know the scriptures or do we just know of the scriptures? Paul reasons with people. God's word comes through Paul. We know God's word is more powerful than anything that we can say. Moving on, Paul was, as Paul was teaching here, although some listened and believed, some were not happy that he was teaching this message. So in order for Paul's ministry to continue, he had to leave because some jealous Jews began to rise up against him. They began to antagonize and build a crowd against Paul. They wanted to raise ruckus. And, and, and for Paul's safety, it says the brothers and sisters took him out of the town. It's almost as if Paul didn't really want to leave, but they wanted to protect Paul. And so they moved him out of the town and they went to Berea. But again, right when he went to Berea, he went to where? The synagogue. His heart was to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a pattern with Paul, he has a passion to teach the gospel. Again, my question to us is, do we have that passion? If you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, do we have a passion to teach the gospel? Or are we scared and nervous to teach the gospel? Paul again begins to preach again and it says that many received the word with eagerness. And then, and then this is cool, they examined the scriptures daily to see if Paul was teaching truth. And the result was good. What Paul was teaching was obviously found in the scriptures because it said many believed. But again, the Jews in Thessalonica, I heard that Paul was doing the same thing in Berea, and they came and crossed that distance to make trouble again for Paul. And they must have stirred up enough trouble because, again, it says the brothers and sisters there 
took Paul out of the city. They wanted to get him to safety. And so Paul was secretly moved to Athens. But I can't help but think Paul's heart worried for those people that he preached to. If, if you read more about Paul in the New Testament, you see that his heart is sincere and, and I'm sure he would have truly desired to stay longer and mentor them in their faith, but circumstances wouldn't let him. And I'm sure Paul was very worried, wondering what if they forget what he taught them? What if they go back to what they previously believed, which was a hodgepodge of religions at that time? That city was a mix master of religions and idols and all that. And people were taking some of this and some of that, and that's what they believed. And, and I'm sure Paul worried that, that they were just going to go back into that and ignore the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. And if you don't know who Timothy is, Paul, Paul raised Timothy, not raised him, but brought him into his faith and he called him a son. And he taught Timothy and Timothy was one of those men with feet who Paul would send out to do talks and preach. And this time he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the believers there that he only had three weeks with. And when Timothy returned, he brought great news. He told Paul they were doing great in their new faith. However, they did have some questions concerning the certainty and the timing of Christ's return. Now, as mentioned, Paul then wrote these letters to that church. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And so that's where we are starting our study today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. So if, again, if you have your Bibles or your apps, please read with me the beginning of this letter from Paul to this very young, very new church in Thessalonica. Paul says this, verse 1, Paul, Sylvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's almost, I'm going to stop it there. It's almost like Paul is going, I'm so glad you're doing okay. I'm so thankful. I mean, in those few verses, you hear Paul's love and compassion for his brothers and sisters he goes on, verse 2, we always, always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that He has chosen you. 
Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What an incredibly encouraging opening of a letter from Paul to the gathering believers in Thessalonica. You can imagine, again, Paul's worry for these people. And in a conversation found in Acts chapter 9, Ananias was told by the Lord that Paul was chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And Paul did just that very thing. And just days after his conversion, Paul began to preach the good news of Jesus, and he never stopped. And when Paul came to Thessalonica, he did just that. He preached the good news of Jesus Christ. But what you and I can't exactly see in these words is that Paul didn't only preach Jesus, he lived Jesus. As best as he could, he lived the name of Jesus, showing kindness, compassion, and leading by example in verse 5 here, Paul says to the readers, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. And you guys, you're going to learn in the next passage, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, what that behavior looked like. What I see here is Paul was sincere in his faith. <laughs> he was intentional. He lives what he believes, and it affects how he thinks and how he acts and how he serves and how people see him. Not because he's checking off a Christian list of I should do this and I shouldn't do that because I'm a Christian. His faith is sincere. His faith is part of him. It, it, it can't be separated from him because he is truly obeying Romans 12 too, which says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. When Paul came to Jesus, he was transformed. Transformed. 
everything was Jesus. Paul was an authentic man of God. And he sincerely worried about this church, the believers in this church. And you can see that in these 10 verses. The first concern being within the second verse, it says, we always thank God for all of you. The concern, they were on his mind. He was concerned about them. And he says, we make mention of you constantly in our prayers. In all reality, Paul could have left that scene and not worried about this church anymore. He could have said, boy, that was a close call, or I'll never go back there again. But he didn't. He worried about what God started there. And he wondered, and he had sincere concern for those who decided to follow Christ and their continued growth and the effect of their growth on others. You see, Paul knew that if he couldn't be present there, the next best thing to do was be praying for him. And he did just that. And you can bet that when Paul says that they always thanked God for them and that they mentioned them constantly in prayers, that's no fluff. He really meant it. And then Paul goes on to remind them of something, that their faith was not a result of anything Paul did. It's not me. He doesn't want any of the attention. It was God's power that chose them. Paul reminds them that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not only words, but with real power behind it. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that, that changed their minds and hearts, giving them full assurance that there was truth in this message that Paul brought. And it also gave them comfort and confidence while in persecution for their belief. Paul reiterates that this was the result of their willingness to accept what the Holy Spirit brought to them. And when there was sincere understanding to follow this gospel message, there was much fruit. Much fruit. So much that the others came to know the name of Jesus from this newly started church. This three-week-old church. The result of their belief, these believers became examples to people in Macedonia, Achaia, and even so much so that Paul and Timothy and Silas said, look, we don't even need to say anything. You guys are doing it. I want to make it clear. We're not just talking about a few towns here. The message and this example that this new church set when they say went to Macedonia and Achaia, those were two major Roman provinces. This included cities, great cities such as Philippi and Athens and Corinth. It actually made up a large part, large part of what is now modern-day Greece. Quite possibly thousands of people, despite the persecution they endured for their belief, saw their examples of living for the gospel and began to believe. A three-week-old church. Believers, young in their faith, but truly understanding what it means 
to follow Jesus. And the presence of the Holy Spirit evidenced it. There was true and sincere results in the acts and and obedience of these believers. And I couldn't help but wonder, is my sincerity of faith like this? And the ultimate reward for faith in Jesus, verse 10, Paul says, is a rescue from the coming wrath. What God will pour out on those who do not believe or who refuse to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. This promise of wrath is the very same thing that that partially motivated Paul and other sincere believers to follow Jesus. Nobody, if you are truly sincere about your faith, would desire anybody to experience the wrath that is promised to those if they don't know Jesus. You guys, the reality is there are people out there and in our families and in our schools and in our neighborhoods who don't know Jesus. And because of that, that wrath is promised to them. What are we doing? What are we doing? In these short 10 verses, we see as the readers, a disciple who has a sincerity of faith And because of his sincerity and his desire that nobody experiences the wrath that is promised, he shares this message to people who, because of his words, backed by his actions and the Holy Spirit, they believe too. And when they begin their sincere faith in Jesus, they can't contain it. And despite the worries of persecution, they take that message and share with regions filled with people around them. God's people are moved to action as a result of people who are coming to Jesus. And the church understands the promise that the Savior will return and you rescue them from the wrath that will come. So what do we do with all of this? What's our take home, so to say, from this passage and this beginning of this book and this story of Paul? God has moved me as I prepared for this message starting over a month ago. And to be real with you and be frank, it's really been something that has been challenging me for a number of months in my life. The question being, is my faith really sincere? Paul was sincere. This church was sincere. Is my faith sincere? I mean, here's a man who gives up everything to follow Jesus and proclaim the name of Jesus. And granted, he had a crazy conversion that rocked him to his core and helped set the pace for all this. But but like I said earlier, you and me have had the same conversion moment where we have claim to be reborn into a life in Christ, my question is, do people see that in us? Is this message of Jesus most important in our daily life? Most important in conversations? 
most important in all of our actions. I'm going to try to put into words what the thought that I have struggled with over the last number of months as I question my sincerity. You see, there are evidences that I believe Christians should be showing. And these are not checklist items that we do for people so that they see we are Christians. These are not things that we do for people to just see. I go to church on Sundays. You've seen that. I read my Bible. You see that. I spend 10 to 15 minutes in devotions every day. You see that. I tithe. You see that. I pray when I go to bed. I pray before meals. You see that. Is that the amount of our walk as Christians? Or are people seeing things from us that is the overflow of our faith? That is the thankfulness of understanding what Jesus did for us. Are we led to do things without much of our part, but everything to do because the Spirit does through us? These evidences should be not something that we do because we know we should as Christians. They should be done, again, because we are moved to them as a result of knowing what Christ did for us. A real reaction, not a guilty one, so to say. Not something that we know we should do, but don't really want to do, but we do it anyway because we're a Christian. You guys, my fear is that we have become numb to what God is asking of us. And we live in a culture, you guys, that for all real purposes tries to quiet God all the time. It's not in our schools anymore. You can't say anything in public. It might, it might upset somebody. I came across this blog, and I want to read real short because this sums up some of the thoughts that I've been struggling with, and my wife, too, as we've talked about the sincerity of our faith. This writer says, Some time ago, my wife and I watched an episode of a comedy series hosted on Netflix. Within a few minutes, we became increasingly uncomfortable with the language and content of the humor. Don't get me wrong, it was hilarious, and as a cop, crude, vulgar humor has been a part of my everyday experience for over two decades. But as we sat there watching this particular episode, we both had a growing sense that this show was somehow desensitizing our sensibilities. We started to feel dirty. We turned off the laptop. Watching any further only demonstrated our tacit approval of what we wanted to stop before our worldview had become permanently altered and numb. I immediately thought about all, the all-too-familiar expression that many quote as Scripture that we're all called to be in the world but not of the world. This notion is consistent with the teachings of the New Testament even if it isn't a direct quote 
John 15, 19 says, If you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. John 17, 14 through 16, I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He says, it seems that Jesus understood the tension we would experience as Christians living in a hostile, ideological environment. The authors of the New Testament also encourage us to, to continue our relationship with the world around us, but to be careful to live in a way that pleases God, not culture. Do we have a sincere faith in what areas of our life do we cling to what the world has? In what areas of our life are we reluctant to allow the Holy Spirit to infiltrate and change so people see us differently? What parts of the world are more important than the change Christ calls us to follow if we follow him? Entertainment. What do we go to we know we shouldn't go to but we reason ourselves into it. What music do we listen to? What's the message in that music teaching? Why do we listen to it anyway? Why do we reason like me? It's got a great beat. And seem to ignore that it wouldn't be something good to listen to. Movies. <laughs> Relationships. Talk, language, what we say, sinful choices that we make, actions that we know are wrong to do, but we choose to do them anyway because the world says it's okay. Is our faith sincere? Are people seeing Christ in us, in the world? Or are we living a lie? Paul displayed to people a sincere faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he understood what it meant to be born again. He understood what it meant to renew your mind and keep it safe. He understood that you had to have a deep love and compassion for the Savior and to fight to pursue that because everything was going to try to keep you from that. It wasn't any easier for him. And it's not going to be easy for us. The reality is this. All of us, I included, will meet the Savior one day. That is very true. This mortal life does not last forever and there will be a day when our time on earth is done. And at that moment, you will be in the presence of God the Father and you will have a reckoning for your life. And I fear, church, that, that this will be our ending and I want to read from you in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. 
I fear that this will be many in the church. Please hear this clearly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do all these miracles in your name? You guys, people think they are living how they should. Verse 23, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Think of that moment. Somebody standing before the Creator thinking they did it right. That their faith was good enough. But because they lacked sincerity and because they did not do the will of the Father, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, I never knew you. I don't want that to be me. I want Jesus to be a part of everything that I am. Paul taught this church to live in sincerity, and that's what he continues in these letters. To live in the reality that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the Savior. He is the son of the one true living God and that following him was not just a title that you earned, Christian. It was a life that you chose and if you chose to live a life as a Christian, that should be a life that is lived in anticipation of that moment of meeting your Savior. And whether you meet him before he returns or that we will be living when he does, the only way to escape the coming wrath that God will pour out on unbelievers is that we know and understand what a sincere faith is. That we fight for that. And we stop doing this cherry-picking kind of faith It's not a faith that you can choose to be obedient to this, but not to this. It cannot be a faith that says, God says this is right and wrong, but the world says this is okay. I think this world sounds better. I'm going to go with that and ignore that part of God. Guys, we do it all the time. We must know the scriptures. We've got to know who Jesus is. We must cling to the promises that he's given us and we must live with the anticipation that he will come again. It will happen. The bigger question is, will you and I be swept in his presence when that time comes or will we, will be, will we be part of the mess that he cleans up? My prayer Church, is that we would be a people who have a sincere following and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that people see that in everything we do and we say. And that we pursue that depth so much that you guys, 
It just happens. Paul was sincere. And he desired sincerity. And we're going to jump more into that as these weeks go on. But I challenge you to this right now. Where is your faith? What things of this world are you okay with that you shouldn't be okay with? How do you reason with others? How do you share Jesus because you don't want them experiencing the wrath? Do you hurt for others that don't know Jesus? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank, thank you that it's live and well and active. And God, when we hear these words, may we be sincere in obedience. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit challenges each one of us today and in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come, Father, that we would desire to know what a sincere relationship with Jesus is and that the things of this world would be easy to give away if we need to. Father, just thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your grace because we are a messy people. And this is not a sprint, it's a marathon, Father, and I pray that you be with us as you promise every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.